it's, it's like a process. And uh, when you start to wrap it and everything, and finally when they're totally still, it's like a sculpture. And then the sculpture starts to move, you know. It uh, goes through an incredible, interesting um, changes. The incredible uh, changes that you're going through and all that is life, you know. And the sky um, is very permanent, not changing. And we change. And it, that sort of like a relationship is very interesting. Life is too complex, so it's almost confusing, you know. And I'm trying to clear it. Simplicity and complexity is not the way I would explain it. It's just um, human life as opposed to the sky. Welcome this week's When There Was Fab. I'm Ed Chen. And I'm John Stone. Joining us this week, uh, Madeline Bocaro. Did I get that right, Madeline? Yes, you did. Author of the universe of Yoko Ono, In Your Mind, a 550-page book covering more or less every aspect you'd ever want to know about Yoko Ono. There's a lot. <laughs> All right. You wanted to mention uh, something about uh, the thing they do at Mendips every year in Liverpool. Yeah. Well, since it's John's birthday and he's smiling in the sky, as Yoko would say, and the Imagine Peace Tower is lit. His childhood bedroom light is on at Mendips. They're keeping it on all night in honor of his birthday. And I just wanted to say that I made this post on Facebook today in a couple of Beatles groups, a few more than a couple. And I got such a beautiful reaction. So I'm just going to read you the quotes. The light in John's childhood bedroom is kept on all night long in his birthday, October 9th each year. In 2002, Yoko purchased Mendips at 251 Menlo Avenue in Liverpool. She donated it to the National Trust, saving the building from demolition. During the restoration, Yoko insisted and ensured that a creaking step remained unaltered. John had told her that he had to jump over it so he wouldn't wake Aunt Mimi when he came in late at night. <laughs> <laughs> Yoko was amazed how small the bedroom was that John had grown up in. She said, John was looking at the world from this room, a boy with a small room and a big dream. I love the fact that his bedroom was preserved exactly as it was. He spoke about it so much. When I'm there, I think about what he was dreaming because the dreams he had there influenced the whole world. That's why I like young people to see it. They might think they don't have anything and they can see what little he had and yet how many beautiful dreams started there. So, you know, the reactions were, wow, I didn't know any of that. I didn't know she cared enough about John to save his childhood home. It was so touching. So basically, all of this is in my book, and this is the kind of stuff that people don't know and need to know and need to have a wave of joy wash over them about these the things that Yoko does anonymously, just 
all the things she has done out of love for John and his fans and for the world. All her work is about healing all of us. That's great. I think things have started to change as far as Yoko. I mean, certainly the Get Back Project last year, everyone getting a chance to see that footage has made people reconsider what they thought about Yoko. Some still haven't changed their mind, but, you know, some don't realize that John insisted that she be there. And, yeah, she wasn't too thrilled about it, but she just loved him and went along with it. But I guess it converted 50% of the people to really see that she wasn't forcing herself upon anything. Right. Well, I mean, it took Paul how many years to actually really decide, yeah, you know, they were right. They really were right. Although at the time, you know, he said it's going to be looking so ridiculous in 50 years' time. They broke up because Yoko sat on an amp. Oh, I thought Paul came off much more understanding about their relationship than history has said he did. There's a big section of my book that tells how Paul helped reunite John and Yoko when they were separated. And anything in my book isn't just a story. It's a quote and a cited source from it, whether it's a tape or a recorded interview or published print interview. It's Paul talking. It's Yoko talking. There was more going on in that visit during the quote unquote lost weekend than we've ever realized. Mm-hmm. And that he spoke with Yoko in the end room and, you know, she's kind of the one who said, well, he needs to do this and he needs to do that. Mm-hmm. You said something earlier that made me think, you know, John certainly wanted her there in the studio. Did she not really want to be there? She was an independent artist and she had ideas about what she was doing next. And you can see she's jotting down notes. She's doing calligraphy. She, her mind is elsewhere. That's just how she was. And She's like, okay, well, I have to be here. Maybe tonight I'll do my work. You know, and in fact, I tell this in a lot of the interviews is that when John told her that he was leaving the Beatles, she was concerned because she's like, what's he going to do? You know, he's not preoccupied with the group anymore. And he's, what is he going to do while I'm doing my work? You know what I mean? So she was not too happy about him leaving, but I guess they just picked up from there and started working together. Well, they had projects together uh, mm-hmm. all through 69, and so that was going on. And I have a chapter that's just about 1969, which is the <laughs> introduction to each section of what they did in 1969. It's huge. I imagine. Lots of stuff going on. So they had these projects, and John was still working on the Beatles at that point. And Yoko had other work. You said she was working on projects. Well, they had met at Indica Gallery in 66. She had all these objects that she was showing around, and she had wrapped the lions in Trafalgar Square. Right. Um, You know, I don't know what her next project was going to be. They didn't get together for a year and a half. You know, they did see each other at events and different things, but they were apprehensive about getting together because she knew she was stepping into something really deep. She was not ready yeah. <laughs> and um, she was trying to avoid it. So she went to Paris and she, she was even saying she was too busy to think about men and she was cynical and she noticed, oh, you know, he looks good. <laughs> but <laughs> they hit it off in such a way that they were both too lonely to give this up. But they tried, you know, they, he went to India with the Beatles. She went to Paris with the thing with Arnett Coleman. And she's thinking, you know, there's moments when she regretted it. And she thought, why did I forget the rules? All this shit I'm taking now, you know, I just, it's the result of forgetting the rules. And you're crazy about someone and you get realized. And and she says, you realize there's the mother-in-law is sitting there all the time. And you forgot there was a mother-in-law. And I woke up, I found out the whole world was one big (laughs) mother-in-law. It wasn't easy. Uh, Well, well, since you mentioned it, how often did Yoko send John something in India? You know, John has said that one of his great treats while he was there off meditating was waiting for the mail and seeing if he got something from Yoko. Did she actually, you know, send cards periodically or was, you know, it a regular thing or do you know? Well, I don't know exactly, but I know she sent him little, you know, notes and she did send him her book, Grapefruit. She saved it. And there is actually a photograph. It's in, in that Imagine book. It's beautiful. He wrote little notes back to her in it. But 
Yeah, until she was sending him. And then when she got back to London, she found a whole pile of letters back from him that she didn't realize were waiting for her. And she that's when she started to think, wow, this is unavoidable. <laughs> As we have discussed, yes, John was becoming disillusioned with the Maharishi, but he, he thinks he'd found something. And he did. That's one of the main reasons why he really wanted to come home. Right, right, right. And uh, he was thinking of bringing Yoko to meet the Maharishi instead of Cynthia, but that didn't work out. And it's a good thing it didn't, because I don't think Yoko would have appreciated that. And she always (laughs) said this quote once in in Playboy. She said, in India, you have to be a guru instead of a pop star, but a guru is the pop star of India, and pop star is the guru here. (laughs) It's just so hard to look at it, you know. Although in the 70s, she went off and did what, Est? She was searching out religions and philosophies, but she was more into the, not the religious ones. She was just searching a little bit. Because in the Playboy interview, the two of them variously talk about the daddies that they have run into through the years. And you know, right. Janoff was for both of them, and Maharishi was for John. And, and Yoko had mentioned one, I thought it was Est, that was hers, uh, all in hers alone. Oh, yeah. Well, she went to Buddhist lectures and she learned a new mantra mm-hmm. and she just checked out all kinds of philosophies. She, she liked New Age more. Before we get into our organized topics here, one of the things you've done in your career is you were part of the Sparks magazine. I was a fan of theirs since I was about 14 and got to know them pretty well. And at a certain point, the person that was doing their newsletter couldn't do it anymore. And they asked me to start writing it because they liked my other work. And I said, definitely, because I love them so much. And Ron <laughs> and Russell are so sweet. And I did that for about 20 years. And I'll, this is the first year I haven't done it because I'm busy promoting this book. <laughs> I don't know, though. They'll, they'll probably have to get someone else this time. With the documentary, everyone is going back to Sparks. But I mention it just because I was curious whether they had ever said anything about Paul's uh, impersonation in the coming up video. Oh, definitely. Yeah, they're, they're thrilled. And actually, they got an autograph from Paul on a picture of him just as Ron, you know, in the video. And it's funny because it says, to Ron and Russell, love Paul. And it says McCartney in parentheses. <laughs> <laughs> So when you when you started to go out on your own, what was the Japanese art scene like in the very beginning when you were very young and sort of finding your way? What what was what well, was it like? You see, these are things that might interest you because probably you don't know, but Japan is very near Russia, and so all the sort of um, uh, Malabesh and all those people who are doing ex- in extremely avant-garde things in Russia, um, we were part of it in a way. I mean, we knew about it. You know. And my father uh, is the first person who translated about Malevich and uh, what he was doing and all that, uh, which was in French. And then my uncle, who married a, a Russian woman, violinist, violinist, had to help him to sort of cover the Russian part or something. But that's how, the, uh, what is it, Movo. Mm. Movo was the um, Preceded movement, yeah. art movement, before Gutai. So, you know, we kind of decided to organize our chat around Japan and both Japan and Yoko and then Japan and John and the collective Lenins and Japan and the Onos and the grandmother's side of the family. Yeah, I can give it all to you. Um, so the Japanese meaning of the name Yoko is ocean child. And in the book, there's several chapters about the Japan. The first one that comes up is called From Liverpool to Tokyo, and it's when John meets Yoko's family. So he was amazed that the love of his life was born 3,000 miles away from his home in Liverpool, and he was always fascinated by Japan, and he was proud of the fact that their relationship was an example of East meets West, and they harped on that a lot. You know, he wrote that song, You Are Here, that's on Mind Games, and he initially wrote that in 1968. I didn't Um, know that. And he's singing, you know, it's based on the meeting of East and West from distant lands, one woman, one man, let the four winds blow. So that's, you know, this is a beautiful song with an Asian Thai style melody. So John was born during the bombings in Liverpool, but he was too young to comprehend that. But, you know, he played in the bombed out buildings and not realizing what happened. But Yoko felt the effects of the war much more. 
that she was seven years older than John. We are all together, you know, and we are uh, a thing called life together. It's great. It's really great, you know. And it's very interesting because it's just a little way of the wind is blowing or uh, the, the weather, the temperature or something, or the light, you know. And I'm suddenly standing in uh, another country or San Francisco or something. Very real. It's very interesting. Yoko's always expressing her inner spiritual world outwardly. And that's kind of an Asian approach. It's like the West see it as unusual because we have no reference point. <laughs> so like we viewed her as kind of exotic or eccentric, but her points are really simple. But to Westerners, they were confusing and odd. But her work is all about positivity and healing and well-being and, you know, spirituality. And I guess her main goal is to teach us to recognize our own inner powers and adjust the misplaced values that we have and mainly be aware of negative space and invisible things that are really important and to respect nature. I have kind of a unique perspective on that. Uh, my mom was on the China side of the Japan-China war, just pre-World War II. So I can see a lot of the same mindset, even though they were on opposite sides of the uh, the issue there. Mm. But, you know, it, it doesn't matter. You know, you, you got a, a young girl growing up in this war. My, my grandfather fought for the uh, Chinese Air Force in the war against Japan and then in the war, uh, you know, against Mao and the communists and then into World War II. I mean, you know, all of that was tied together. And, you know, I can see how that affected my mom and I can see how in many ways that attitude was kind of similar to the things that people don't get about Yoko. Uh-huh. Definitely. She's just wrapped up in the invisible and the inner world and a cosmic consciousness. And that's all very Japanese. We could start maybe with when John met her family, right? So they visited Japan together in 1971. John was happy in Japan because he was anonymous, right? And he, he didn't have to be a Beatle. Um, and it was a year after the Beatles broke up. And he mo first met her parents in the winter of 71 at their home. And Despite his worldwide fame, you know, Yoko's parents were not impressed by John at all. And he had no idea about her family of nobility and heritage and wealth. And uh, when they learned that their daughter was marrying a working class guy from Liverpool, you know, they actually made a statement to the press saying, we are not proud of Yoko Ono. I wish I could find a copy of this thing. But it's stated in several places that they actually did this. So he wasn't trying to impress anyone. And Yoko said he just went to my parents unshaven and wearing an army jacket. He was like, he was beautiful to her, but they thought he looked like a bum. When I uh, took John to my parents' place, my father just took me aside and said, the other one was more handsome. <laughs> <laughs> if anybody had a daughter who was marrying a beetle, they'd say, oh, get us tickets to the show. But there was none of that, you know, in her family. I saw a picture of um, John and Yoko with Yoko's sister at Tiddenhurst. Uh-huh. Was that before the Japanese trip or after? Probably after. But her sister, Setsuko, is an artist now as well. So when in 71 did the trip actually occur? It was winter. I know it was winter. January, okay. February. Uh, so early in the year. Yeah. Yeah, Setsuko didn't know about the Beatles until Yoko showed her a photograph and said, look, this is the Beatles and I'm in love with this person. <laughs> she says, you know, she remembered John encouraging her to leave the World Bank and pursue her art. And she took it as his advice. And she's now really, um, she's exhibits everywhere. Well, I mean, tell us about Yoko's parents. Uh, you know, her father being a banker, is that something that, again, as you note, a lot of people don't really know anything about? Okay, so her father was pursued a career in piano. I mean, he was a talented pianist, but he had to give that up and become a banker in order to uh, marry into her family, first of all. And her mother's descended from this wealthy Yasuda family, which was a financial clique, and they had imperial political background. They had 
great economical influence in Japan. And her parents once told her there were only three families in all of Japan, which are the most powerful, and her family was one of them. You know, the Yasuda banking empire was like comparable to the Rockefellers. And wow. even her, the family home, Kudan House, is now a national landmark. It's one of the few structures that survived the Tokyo bombings. I think the Filipino ambassador still lives there. How did her father manage to get into that business? If Was he connected in some fashion to, to be able to leave the art world and join this bank? It's easier to leave the art world and join a bank than a banker becoming an artist. <laughs> <laughs> the banking started on her uh, mother's side. The family fortune on that side was made by her great-grandfather, Yasuda Zenjiro, in John was interested in this guy because Yoko told him the story of this ancestor who was so rebellious. He was a self-made billionaire. He was wealthier than any American at the time. And he migrated to Tokyo to make this fortune. And she compares his migration to John. You know, this guy was born in the mountains in Japan and he traveled to Tokyo. And that kind of mirrored John's Liverpool origins and his move to London. And during the Depression, Yasuda purchased insolvent banks and gave the money to poor people whose accounts were frozen. And he was the son of a poor samurai family that amassed this huge fortune later on and founded the Yasuda Bank in 1880. But then this another parallel with John is that Yasuda refused honors from the emperor many generations before John returned his MBE to the queen. (laughs) And he wanted to kind of remain a commoner. And Yoko said, John picked up a portrait of Yasuda. And he said, this guy is me in my past life. And Yoko said, well, don't say that. He was assassinated. It it is all this kind of eerie stuff that goes through the book. And um, so, yeah, her great-grandfather was murdered at his villa by the socialists who scheduled a ruse meeting, you know, like to obtain a bank loan. And this rebel just slashed his neck with a sword and killed him and committed suicide. Her paternal grandfather, Eijiro Ono, he was born into another impoverished samurai clan. And he got a PhD at the University of Michigan. He was the first Japanese person in the world to receive a PhD. And back in Japan, he taught university in Kyoto. And he met and married one of Japan's um, pioneering feminists, a wealthy aristocrat, Tsuruko Saisho. And this guy became the president of the Industrial Bank of Japan, and his third son was Yoko's father. And then she has an uncle, Kasei, and he was a journalist, a diplomat, foreign minister, and he was Japan's first ambassador to the UN, and he was there at the signing of Japan's surrender on the USS Missouri in 1945. Wow. So that's just a smattering. There's more, a lot more. You know, when when John organized a family reunion later on, Yoko said, well, why would I want to see these boring people? They're the kind of people (laughs) I left to make my own life. So to her, they were boring, but they were very important people. Yeah. Comes from an accomplished family, clearly. Yes. And then, you know, they sent her to the exclusive school in elementary school, Gakashuin, and it was only open to nobility and aristocrats. And the emperor's sons were her classmates. And that's where she had classical training at a young age. And of course, one of the emperor's sons had a crush on her. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, so then he organized this reunion in 1977, once his immigration status got cleared and he was sure he could get back to the United States. So they spent every summer from 1976 onward in Japan, longer than the summer, you know, months. John took a six-week course in Japanese, and he studied everything. He just immersed himself in Japanese culture. And he was so happy there. He would say, they know Ono better than me. They call me Mr. Ono. (laughs) Yeah, there was a sketchbook with uh, that he used to learn Japanese. And that is really pretty cool, both from a Beatles perspective and from a learning Japanese perspective. Right. There's prints of his drawings in there. It's called I means love. Uh, All the drawings that he, he made to learn Japanese. It's cute. And he did he got into kabuki and calligraphy and haiku. You know, he was into it. Going back a little bit, though, when Yoko was 12, her and her siblings, um, her brother and sister, they were taken in the middle of the night to a shelter while Tokyo was being firebombed. 
So that's another uh, little incident. <laughs> you know, it's like horrific. Our city is burning, our town is burning, our neighborhood. And so they were evacuated from this opulent home to this shabby countryside farmhouse. And they went suddenly from riches to rags. And they're sent away for safety, really. And they were sent with a servant that abandoned them. Yoko says it was like a gone with the wind affair, people leaving. Yeah, it sounds like. Strange people barging in and taking things, throwing garbage in the well so we'd have nothing to drink. This was kind of the basis for everything that, that happened with her because she realized that life was transient and all these sudden changes and static life seemed false to her, you know, and like statues and paintings deteriorated in time, everything got destroyed. So, you know, instead of trying to hold on to things, she tried to make things that would grow and ask people to participate and add to it. So it all stemmed from this. And she had to find food for herself and the, the brother and sister and they were taunted by the poor kids, you know, near the farm they were staying at because they could tell that they were wealthy. But what good was the wealth? You know, she had satin kimonos, but she wanted food. And then <laughs> one of the families went into the woods to find mushrooms to eat, and they died from eating the poison mushrooms. Mm. And this is what she experienced. That's where the whole Imagine thing came from. Oh, yeah. Her mother was promised maybe a better place, and she didn't realize it was going to be so dilapidated. And, yeah, the kids were laying on the floor, and they were hungry, and they were imagining menus in the air. And Yoko, her brother, was crying because he was so hungry. And she said, well, what do you want to have? And he said, oh, I want ice cream. So she's telling him, oh, imagine ice cream. What flavor? And and then he started laughing, and they they really felt better just by imagining that they were in a better place. And even her little work that's a hole to see the sky through, everybody thinks that's so cute. You're supposed to look through this hole at the sky. But what it really represented was them laying on the floor in this farmhouse and there was a hole in the roof. And that was the only beautiful sight she had at this limited view of the sky. Do we have any idea how long this period lasts? It was probably about a year till the Japanese surrender in 45, yeah. Right. Then they moved to America shortly after that. Yeah. Not too shortly. I mean, she was 19 probably when they moved to America. She still went to the peer school with the emperor's sons. And then she was the first philosophy student in Japan. And then at 19, they moved to um, Scarsdale, New York, where she enrolled in Sarah Lawrence. You know, she's in her late teens and she tried to communicate the effects that the war had on her life, but nobody understood her work. You know, she would write a novel and they say it's too long for a short story and she write a two short story and they say it's too long for that. I don't know, she just tried to fit in and, and she wasn't. And she wrote a novel based on ancient Japanese literature about this 800 monster that was so large that people mistook him for a mountain and they didn't know he was alive and he couldn't <coughs> communicate and he wanted to die and he couldn't kill himself. And he was always getting confused and tangled in his heads, never knowing where he was going. And he was always <laughs> hungry. And this is all her, you know. And then he, he got so lonely, he had to kill himself, but then he couldn't kill himself. And she's realizing, oh, my God, this is so autobiographical. It's horrible. So. <laughs> yeah, I've always found it interesting that Linda and Yoko were both at Sarah Lawrence, not quite at exactly the same time, but roughly the same time, kind of going through the same thing in their own ways. Yes, in some ways. I mean, Linda was uh, a little less traumatized, but Linda's For mother sure. did die in a plane crash. Absolutely. Uh, I'm sure she had her share, you know. She has also uh, expressed through the years how she kind of felt misunderstood and that she was trying to say things uh, about her life and no one really got it uh, within the university system. They would listen to men, but nobody listened to what women were saying, especially if they were unhappy or complaining. <laughs> it was tough. Then both of them would then find their first husbands, if not at university, in and around the university. Yes, and marry shortly with, within weeks of each other. Yeah, it's very strange. But And that John and Paul both lost their mothers at young that, age. Yeah, well, and, then, and later on they would both lose their fathers within months of each other. So let's then go into Yoko's two husbands. We know a little bit more about her second husband. Her first husband was, uh, was a pianist. Um, yeah, Toshi, actually, 
Toshi passed away two days ago. Oh, well. Yeah, I was really sad. Pioneering pianist and composer Toshi Ishianaji, who studied with John Cage and continued to lead Japan's advances in experimental modern music, has died. He was 89 years old. Ishianaji, who was married to Yoko Ono before her marriage to John Lennon, died Friday, according to the Kanagawa Foundation for the Arts, where Ishianaji served as general manager of the arts. The cause of death was not mentioned. We would like to express our sincere gratitude to everyone who loved him during his lifetime, Kazumi Tamamura, president of the foundation, said in a statement. Ichianaji studied at Juilliard School in New York and emerged as a pioneer using free composition techniques that left much to chance, not only traditional Japanese elements and instruments, but also electronic music. He seemed really sweet. Um, and they, their marriage didn't end in a bad way. Well, she was just more stifled by the male-dominated world, you know, but she always asked after him, you know, from mutual friends. They were, you know, she still cared about him. But anyway, he was born the same year as Yoko, and they got together in 1956 when they were both living in New York City. And they both retained their Japanese souls and roots, but they embraced the Western world. And they each had classical education in Japan from a young age. And his family wasn't wealthy. And guess what? Yoko's parents disapproved of him, too. <laughs> and they eloped without too much money. And he was interested in 12-tone composition, but he was at Juilliard and they didn't have classes in that. So he just became a virtuoso pianist and composer. And he met John Cage, who turned him on to avant-garde music. And Yoko Toshi and John Cage performed with Mayuzumi in a concert tour of Japan. She was in this world of men. But she was fine with it until they weren't listening to her anymore, I guess. But Toshi was cool. He defended Yoko's work. And she got this scathing criticism in 62 for her performance at Sogetsu in Japan. And he sent a letter to the editor of this publication. And he wrote, um, I wish that critics could understand that an artist has original language. And sometimes it can't be understood by existing senses. This especially applies to Yoko's works, which have new metaphysical rules. This is perfect description of her. Yeah. And he says um, her work expressed an in internal struggle. It has special place in the scene. She was a genre in itself. She was originally a poet, but her own identity was that she didn't belong to anything. She was unconstrained by social conventions, and that's what fascinated him. So he got her and her work and everything. But they divorced in 1962. But he went back to Japan and became one of Japan's foremost composers. He was working up till he passed away last week. So I read something not too long ago where Yoko was talking about she did music shows in her apartment during this time that we're talking about. You know, the the late 50s in New York City, and you know, it was basically a rat infested place. But she was so happy because she got to actually do these shows and have people come in and, and listen to her play. Right. So that was known as the Chamber Street Concert Series. She knew this was going to be important. And she really um, rented this loft. And it was in, it was a co-op before artists all could live together and work in a building. It was one of the first instances of this happening. And um, it was from it was late, late 1960 to mid-1961. And because there were very few concert venues in the city that would host avant-garde artists, literally like two. So she uh, wanted a place where she could, you know, gather up these people and let them perform. And they all came. And it was everybody like John Cage, Merce Cunningham, Duchamp, um, Noguchi, everybody on the scene. And it, it was really cool and successful. I really like the fact that she apparently referred to John Cage as JC. Yeah, <laughs> because he was so well respected. And, you know, he was much older than her. So she was much older than John, about eight years older. But John Cage was her senior, you know, but she was working kind of as an equal with him. And Charlotte Mormon, she was the founder of the Avant Garde Festival. And she brought the artists together. Yoko had them in a space, but... Um, Charlotte brought them out into 
the street, you know, and to, she held it in train terminals. She held it in parades. She held it. It, it was great. She really was a catalyst in getting all those artists known and recognized. But I put this quote on the back of the book because it's so great. And, it, and people said, oh, this could turn some people off. And I'm like, I don't care. I'm the publisher. <laughs> so she, Charlotte Mormon in 1989 she said, the Beatles were fantastic. They left their mark. But a hundred years from now, it's Yoko Ono the world's going to remember, not John Lennon or the Beatles. <laughs> so she may or may not be right, but this is how important she thought Yoko was. And she performed Yoko's cut piece on her own several times. And she lived with Yoko and they were just really, really close. Yeah, it's amazing the depth of styles that Yoko would go into. One question with regards to the music. Why did she choose not to play instruments so often, or at least not publicly? You're not on the records. You know, she would sing on them, but it, it seems that, you know, she's not there playing an instrument. You know, we hear the story of uh, Yoko playing the chords of Beethoven backwards and that becoming because. So, you know, she obviously had no issue with playing the piano for somebody, for John Lennon. Mm -hmm. But did she just feel that that wasn't something that she wanted to do? Yeah, I mean... The only instrument she did play was piano. Her mother was a multi-instrumentalist. I mean, although she was just a housewife socialite, <laughs> but I don't think she felt confident enough or if she was doing the singing that took up all her energy and that defined her part in the song, I guess. And yeah, she never really played, but she always used musicians. I just always found that a little bit, not the kind of thing I would expect out of Yoko Ono. Now, John said to Yoko, can you play that backwards? Now, he probably didn't mean reversing each of the notes she played and playing them in reverse order. He was probably talking about the arpeggios. Instead of going up, go down. And so forth. Well, it wasn't long, I'm sure, before John started thinking about going up and down. And being the rebel that he was, he decided to break up those arpeggios with some bass notes. And you have Because. We move on from music. I mean, and we'll come back to music. I guess the next thing, we mentioned it briefly, Grapefruit. So Grapefruit started as just sort of thoughts during the war era. So she was kind of writing it in her mind throughout all these years. Well, the name Grapefruit, of course, it's a hybrid fruit, you know, orange and pomelo. It's called pomelo in Spain, in Spanish countries. And she spent so much of her life in America and Japan that she felt like a hybrid of East and West. So that's why she named it Grapefruit. But no matter how modern her thoughts and her work became, she was always rooted in traditional Japanese culture. And she felt that she was not just from one place, but the entire world. The instructions derived from at a childhood school assignment to transcribe the sounds of chirping birds. She felt that you couldn't do that accurately because it's so beautiful and random and you can't really capture it. So she saw it as a limitation in the way that we score music. She did know how to write musical notation, but she started writing words and instructions on the musical staff, like play this to the accompaniment of the birds of, at dawn. Because that's just much more uh, a clearer way of telling an instrumentalist what to play. <laughs> so that was like the first instructional thing that she did. And Grapefruit really was just a bunch of cathartic exercises she wrote to cope with daily life and all the misunderstanding of her work. And it was an exercise to keep from going insane. And she would say things simply and everything's pretty like haiku almost, you know, just very few words, but to evoke 
a picture, an idea. But she said, you know, she was so deep inside her own mind. And when she met John, she used the word mind games. She said, <laughs> John, work me up for my mind game. And she's like, uh, I learned all about rock and pop from John. He had astute observations of people on a realistic level that I didn't have. And surrealism is very natural for me. It's easier for me to describe my emotions in a surrealistic, symbolic way. But here was this guy who was very straightforward. And if I was beating around the bush trying to say things with symbolism, he'd say, what do you really mean? You can read a surrealistic poem and you don't know what it really means. It's just word weaving or mind weaving. And you think it seems very beautiful, but what's the point? And she said, instead, John gave me the body back. He woke me up from my mind game, and that was very healthy for me. That's pretty cool. I think she kind of came out of her own mind. When Sean was a kid, he'd ask for candy, and she'd say, eat the candy in your mind. (laughs) (laughs) Mother, really. (laughs) Yoko herself was coming out of a period where she was institutionalized. Now, was that self-institutionalized, or why did that actually happen? That was the early 60s? Yeah, in the early 60s, it was a suicide attempt. Um, She admits it, you know, she was just at the end of her rope, and she was admitted. Now, I don't, I didn't go and investigate the documentation, but she was there, and that's Mm -hmm. where her second husband sought her out and found her and became kind of her promoter. Things took off from there. John never got quite that deep, but he too had his own issues with depression. Oh, definitely. I think the primal therapy definitely helped him, you know, and Yoko helped him face reality. He always said he was caught in a dream world and she taught him how to get out of it. Well, and they did it together. I mean, the various drugs that they went through, there was a reason for that. And I think they learned things from each other from taking these drugs about their own minds. Right, they did. They learned from the drugs, but what Janov actually said about John, the level of his pain was enormous. He was almost completely non-functional. He couldn't leave the house. He had no defenses. He was falling apart. He was just one big ball of pain. This is someone the whole world adored, and it didn't change a thing. At the center of all that fame and wealth and adulation was just a lonely little kid. And that's what Yoko was dealing with. That's what she met, and she was in a way the same. They were both abandoned by their parents, essentially. His were gone. He finds his mother again, and then she's tragically killed. So that was a trauma that I don't know how anyone could over. And she had these wealthy parents who didn't appreciate her or her work, and they were both very, very lonely. John's father kept coming in and out of his life during his childhood, and apparently the same held for Yoko. Her her dad was off as a banker in the States while she was growing up. Yeah, she didn't meet him until she was two and a half, and he was this distant figure, and her mother showed her a picture of her father every night to kiss goodnight. <laughs> kind of strange. A little so, cold. Yeah. And, you know, she's raised by servants, and she's told that she's their superior. So it's very strange, a little girl, and, oh, yeah, you're in charge of these people. It's very weird. It's like Joffrey in Game of Thrones. <laughs> <laughs> you're going to be the king, so you better learn how to take control of all these peasants. Mm, yeah. It's very uh, confusing. Did your father come to Japan to meet your mother? Or did they meet? No, they met in London. But once they got married, or especially after I was born, my dad became a real Japanophile. Really? Yeah. He really loved coming to Japan and hanging out with my mom's Japanese family. And he really loved Japan. Really? Even when I was growing up, I remember him making sort of nori on the stove. You know, he would heat it up, kind of grilled (laughs) and He loved my mom so much, so I think he really wanted to understand her culture. Even before Yoko, John had had some ideas about Japan, and he'd already started to become fascinated with the country. Oh, definitely. He was into all that kabuki and calligraphy, and even when he was in the Beatles. They were holed up in the hotel in Japan. They couldn't even go on the street, so they were bringing all these cultural items to them and teaching them, showing them tea ceremony. It's beautiful. I mean, I've been there and it's just breathtaking. 
and he still found a way to get out. He actually managed to escape. And I don't know if you heard that in the last couple of weeks, the, the Japanese uh, police have actually released a half hour of footage that they took of both dealing with the Beatles and the crowds. And then the, there's a little tiny bit of, of the show, but it's really kind of fascinating stuff to see how their view of security was. Well, a lot of her works are totally entrenched in Japanese culture. And I think one of the most important ones that people probably view as kind of a joke is painting to be stepped on. Leave a piece of canvas or finished painting on the floor or in the street. And she created that in 1960. But it's really all about courage and conviction. The idea stems from Fumie, which is stepping painting in Japan. And what that is, is in the 15th century, this technique was used to distinguish Christians from non-Christians. And a person was asked to step on a portrait of Christ. And people who wouldn't step on it were immediately taken away and crucified. So most of the Japanese Christians refused to step on it despite knowing the consequences. And as a young child, Yoko was terrified by that story but she also promised herself that she wanted to be a person who adhered to her principles just like those Japanese Christians did. And, you know, later in New York, she said she felt like she could finally release herself from that little girl and step on the painting. Simple, but a lot of it's heavy. How did she promote it? Because that story is fascinating. She didn't promote it. This is the thing when, you know, she's interviewed uh, infinitely, but they're always asking about John or the Beatles, and she's just so polite. She doesn't really force herself upon right. anyone. And this is what's lost in translation. You know, that movie about Japan, that's how I feel about her work. People see it on the surface, but they don't understand it. Right. I think that her art definitely requires people to change their perceptions of things. Mm-hmm. And was it just too early of a time in, in, in the development of mankind that nobody could see that aspect of her art? Uh, I think she would have been more understood in Japan. When she went back to Japan to do a concert tour in 1974, when John was separated from her, she gets off the plane and it's like the Beatles at LaGuardia with Kennedy Airport, whatever airport it was. Crowds and crowds. And they respected her there. Wow. They loved her. I mean, she has mend piece, and that's the practice of kintsugi, where they use liquid gold to mend broken china in Japan. And her whole aspect about mending and wrapping, like she wrapped the statues in Trafalgar Square and the sky piece for Jesus Christ, which is for John Cage when she's wrapping the members of an orchestra. It's all about healing and mending. She was on um, Jonathan Ross' show. And she wrapped him up completely like a mummy through the whole interview, and he's making jokes. So we're going, you're wrapping me in bandages? Yeah, wrapping. Uh, yes. This is not this is not like plaster of Paris, is it? You're not going to get this it's wet. It's a very peaceful thing to do. Okay. It's quite, I'm fine, feeling quite calm already. Yeah, I think so. My legs are quite big, and you know I'm kind of quite large, so this might take a while. And so <laughs> why don't we go to a break, and you can carry on? Without you, you mean? No, no, with me. <laughs> But no, why don't you carry on wrapping me? We'll yes. go to a break and we'll see how this pans out when we get back. So don't go away. We've got more from Jamie Louise. Oh, and we've got Vin Diesel will be joining us as well for a trip. So don't go away. And he says, well, what's this about? And she says, well, I'm, I'm kind of like a nurse. I, I, and she's like, I, I deal with wounded people. So they, that's, it's the funny, but that's what's heavy. It's really what she means. It's a small step from there to bagism. Right. Well, bagism was, um, you know, the little prince. That's where she got that idea. They performed that in uh, several different locations, sometimes on stage, sometimes in a hotel. But in The Little Prince, it, like a wise fox tells a prince, in order to understand the world, you have to look beneath the surface and one sees clearly only with the heart, anything essential is invisible to the eyes. So she was all about being invisible. The invisible things are what's important. Negative space. What's the most important thing in the whole world? Air. 
And if it's not invisible, we're in big trouble. I mean, it's polluted. <laughs> so she's just seeing those things. And the, her half a wind exhibition is where she cuts furniture in half. It's a half a room, okay? And the couch is in half, the chair is in half, the painting on the wall is in half. And it was when she had separated from her second husband and she felt empty inside. But really, you know, we're seeing the half that's there, but she's seeing the half that's not there. Right. Well, especially when there's a person involved, when there's a daughter involved. That's such a heartbreaking story. Oh, yeah. That was traumatic for her also. Well, I mean, especially after, you know, all we've been talking about, her own separation from her parents, to have her daughter ripped from her in that fashion. And what can I say? I mean, she spent so much time and effort into trying to find her. I published little bits from an interview with the British journalist Caroline Kuhn, and I asked her permission to use it. And she said, oh, I'm happy you're going to use these. It's a beautiful interview, and it was never published. So I said, well, why wasn't it published? She said, oh, it was for Cosmopolitan. And I handed it in, and they told me, oh, no, you got to dirty this up. you got to say how Yoko hooked on John onto drugs and how she abandoned her daughter. And thankfully, Caroline just pulled the story. But this is the kind of stuff that happened to Yoko all the time. You know, we're, we're talking about Yoko's art. Uh, there were two pieces that you were mentioning to us that are particularly interesting. In the, They are pieces that started as imaginary and became reality yeah so um one of them was it it evolved into the imagined peace tower which is lit every year on john's birthday and what it is um yoko wrote about an imaginary light tower in 1965 that would sometimes appear according to the sunlight and it she described it as a phantom house and the old only building material is light you know, it ended up in grapefruit later on. And John was intrigued by it. And he asked her on their first night together if he could purchase one for his garden. So she explained to him that it was conceptual. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then here we go, 2007, she somehow gets this thing built in um, Reykjavik and has a ceremony every year. And, a, you know, it's lit from his birth date to his death date, which is December 8th every year. And the words imagine peace are carved on the base in 24 languages. And of course the wish trees, the wishes are all in there on the base of it. So that's one crazy thing. And then in 1971, she advertised that she had her own exhibition at the museum of modern art in New York city. She put ads in a, paper for it and she printed programs catalogs and people showed up looking for this imaginary show and she claimed that she was in the sculpture garden releasing flies and she had her assistant at the front door exit um, with a microphone and a camera and asking people hey what did you think of the Yoko Ono show and they were all, oh, I don't know. I didn't see it. Or someone said, oh, it was good. Or <laughs> it's just this crazy thing that wasn't even there. And then she gets a phone call. She's back at her apartment and she gets a phone call from the heads of MoMA. And they say, "What are you advertising that you have a show here? She said, yeah, but don't worry about it. It's only in my mind. <laughs> so she, she was saying, oh, okay. Yoko Ono in 1971, decided to have a show here at the Museum of Modern Art. But she didn't use, as always, the classical channel. She didn't talk to a curator or call the director of the museum, can I have a show? She decided to have a show. So she published her own catalog. She bought ads in the Village Voice, the New York Times, advertising a show here. I think Moma should have said, well, okay, so we will have the Yoko Ono exhibition here, but it will all be in your mind. And the show was purely conceptual. The idea was to release flies in the garden and to follow their flight. So the message was like, the museum is not where the show should happen. The show only started here. I wasn't thinking that it's going to be a big thing like this. I just did it and I said, ha ha, you know, and that was it. It's a very, very interesting development for me, you know. So I don't know where it's going. <laughs> but it's just like the world peace. We don't know where it's going. <laughs> 
So then in 2015, guess what happened? Yoko Ono, one woman show for the whole summer. She's really a pioneering voice among her generation. We felt the format and exhibition would be able to really understand what made her uh, who she is today. Yoko Ono's work is in the world. It's not here in the museum. What we can do is bring traces. And with her help, we kept the show as lively as possible. She intervened throughout the exhibition, building a giant stair, bring the people, bring the viewers to the skylight. Or she added uh, sound intervention throughout the exhibition. Very early on, she wanted to create a form of music or a form of art which wouldn't be bound by the traditional definition of those mediums. If you get a chance to see one of Yoko's shows, there are still a number of them traveling around, right? Yeah, they're incredible. We had one here probably seven or eight years ago. Yoko actually flew down for the opening, and I saw her at her press conference when she was introducing the thing. Quite a moving experience. Everything's white, everything's pure. You're in a whole new world, really. It's just so sweet and beautiful, and it just... Everything is to give you a good feeling. And even if she has something that might be disturbing, there's always a light at the end of the tunnel. And it's just an experience, really. People love it. There's much more to Yoko than people give her credit for, you know, because they want to believe that, well, I mean, the worst. You know, <laughs> As it herself, yes, I'm a witch. Right, and she's the opposite. She, well, a witch is a, a, could be a good witch. Yeah, yeah well, Glenda, Glenda the good witch. Yeah, but she's always basically fighting the good fight, right? She's a visionary. She's positive, right? She's always inhabiting the future in her mind. And Sean, I have a quote from Sean that's beautiful. He says, people always use the term so-and-so was ahead of their time. And I think in my mom's case, it's appropriate. Look at her activism, her feminism, and all sorts of stuff that seems more our current with the times, with, you know, protesting this year and people reinvestigating relationships between men and women and different minority groups. It's salient to look back and realize that my mom was fighting the good fight for a long time. It's beautiful that as a controversial artist, a misunderstood person, that her body of work and her public thinking has come full circle and is now more relevant and I believe more meaningful than it's ever been. That's great. Perfect encapsulation of who she is. All right. Thank you, Madeline. Your book is uh, in your mind, as as we keep as we keep saying, uh, the infinite universe of Yoko Ono. The best place to get it is from you, although it is available on Amazon and other places. Yes, it's available on Amazon worldwide. Um, it's available at Book Baby, um, and it's available through me at conceptualbooks.com. The hardcover version is only available through me, and there's the option of having it signed. And I would certainly say go and look at your website. You have large numbers of excerpts, and, and well, uh, you, as well, you talk about some of the other rock and roll things and other things that you've written about through the years. A, a very impressive collection of work of your own. Thank you. That website, yeah, that's MadelineX.com. And then the website for the book is InYourMindBook.com. You can read all the reviews and hear my other podcasts and shop on there also. All right. Thank you very much for uh, joining us. You know, this has been a tremendous talk. Pleasure talking to you. Thanks, guys. I loved it. All right. Uh, John and I will be back next week with a new show. Subscribe to When They Was Fab on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever finer podcasts are found. Please join our Facebook group, and we could be reached at When They Was Fab and on Gmail. The opening theme was written, produced, and recorded by Jay Young Kim, Beaster Famine Studios, San Francisco, California. Welcome back.
as you can see, I am being transformed into a work of living art by Yoko. Okay. Okay, well, that, that, I suppose I had that coming. Okay. It's, well, it's, well, I, you know, I've still got some presenting to do on the show this evening, I think. I hope you can breathe. Yeah, you should maybe ask before you cover my nose with your <laughs> So, but this is oddly, it's quite calm being in here. I must say, it's quite a pleasant, it's quite a pleasant experience. <laughs> is that, is that the intention or is it? The intention is to make sure that you feel peaceful. <laughs> I, I have felt more peaceful at other times. <laughs> maybe, maybe doing this in front of an audience, maybe if this was being done in private, we might feel more. <laughs> <laughs> and so you are doing this at Meltdown, not to everyone, we should point out. And there's a silent disco going on as well, is that why? Yes, yes. But you know, Meltdown is for everybody in a way, because we have one night that's for guys to complain about themselves. And also, there's a night for women to complain, of course, you know. And we all have nights that we can... What? <laughs> Excuse me, excuse well, me. I, I'm so calm <laughs> that I momentarily... Well, I think it's great that uh, you're also uh, a man of new age. Um, you know what, I this must be odd for you to be having a conversation with me looking like this, isn't it? Uh, I mean, you're taking this in your stride. Not really. But... I mean, you know, I'm used to... I'm like a nurse, you know. I'm used to uh, people with uh, <laughs> bandages. <laughs> OK. On a mental level. Now I can see again, but you don't mind me seeing again. No, I don't mind. Okay, good. I tell you one thing, there's sickness going on and there's some good people doing work in hospitals, but they got no bread to do it on. Not only are they working in a miserable condition with sick people, but they're, they're scraping the barrel for funds to keep going. Turned up nice again. 